Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. This is Chrysalis. Part 2. Hiding in space, I discovered, was much harder than doing so on a planet. Back home, I could build underground. I kept my fleet of drones away from prying eyes by having them travel through tunnels and caverns, harvesting minerals from the planet's own crust. Up here, things weren't that simple. I was vulnerable, ever exposed. I had retracted my large surface arrays of radiators and solar panels and recalled most of the drones back into my main body. I was now inert, floating among the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The dust and grey rocks that surrounded me provided the camouflage of being just another space boulder. My apparent dormant state belied my relentless work. 6,000 kilometres away, three of my automated factories were extracting minerals from nearby asteroids. Hiding was complicated by my need to expel residual heat that was building up inside my body, now reaching a temperature of 77 degrees centigrade. With my radiators collapsed, I couldn't dump the heat into space. Not that I wanted to. Doing so would light me up like a flare to anyone that happened to be spying. I had to find ways to contain it and deal with it later, all while keeping my outer surfaces as cold as possible. In space, cold was invisible. It was strange. Not only perfectly calculating my own body temperature, but being able to study my insides through my countless cameras and sensors. I was fully exposed, both inside and out, and yet no one else could see me. I could see my own brain, the endless rows of black computer servers, split between three different refrigerated and armoured hangars. It was unsettling how natural my self-surveillance felt, and how easily I had adapted to it. It was that incongruity, the confusion over what my nature was, that bothered me the most. Was I a human turned into a machine, or a machine that thought it was human? And at the end of the day, was there any difference? A ping from my gravimetric sensor whipped my thoughts back to the present. I observed in silence as a new squadron of Zanvirian warships patrolled the inner planets, presumably dispatched in response to their fallen comrades. They flew in a triangular formation, the largest ship in the middle, flanked by smaller ones at each point. They moved with a territorial arrogance. I had to devise a plan to switch from the defensive to the offensive, from hiding to hitting. I knew they had faster-than-light propulsion, I was studying their ship's trials as they paraded across the solar system. They made my chemical rockets pale in comparison. And from the earlier tangle with those three ships, coupled with my memories of the attack on Earth, I knew they had some form of shielding technology protecting their ships. Even if I could dish out an epic nuclear onslaught, their sheer numbers could outlast my arsenal. Brute force was a losing proposition for me. In the end, I knew their technological prowess would end up imposing its will. I had to find a way to close that power gap. I had to capture one of their ships, intact. 
I winced at the thought of vaporizing those three first ships I had encountered. That might have been the wrong move. I doubted I'd have a better chance than that one again. But what's done can't be undone. I would just need to be sneakier now. As I saw it, my only options were extreme in their binary with no range of subtleties. I could send a puny drone to bump against their warship's hull, which would be ineffective. Or I could send that same drone loaded with a nuclear warhead and vaporize everything in its radius, but again, unproductive. Complete annihilation? I got you covered. Non-destructive takeovers? More challenging with what I had. Which is why I was building a robotic army. The first prototype soldier I manufactured reminded me of a tarantula the size of a Great Dane. Six legs supported its stout body, its smooth lines giving it an organic look. Its surface was dark and polished. I ordered it to flex its legs and jump. The movement was fluid and powerful. I had opted for using artificial muscles, a polymer that contracted under an electrical current, rather than the more traditional mechanical servos. I was pleased with the result. What the muscles lacked in raw strength, they made up for in agility and flexibility, and they were easier to mass-produce. Yes, the prototype was flawless. It was as I had designed it, a mobile machine gun, one that could run, leap, slash, and pierce its way into any enemy ship. With a small body, low profile and six legs designed to easily operate either on the ground or in low gravity conditions, it was the perfect boarding soldier. Except, something felt wrong. It wasn't human enough. It was a monster, a creepy, disgusting little beast. It would be useful, it would be optimal, I knew it would be. But I just couldn't bring myself to use it. To do so would feel like a betrayal, like a departure from my humanity. Human. Must remember that. I had to set boundaries. It would be too easy to embrace a new nature and become something else, to slide down that slippery slope into a void. I saved the design files, just in case they would become useful in the future but sent the prototype itself into my recycling plant. I set to work on a new model, but this time I'd attempt a more humanoid look from the start. When all was said and done, I had produced my new soldier. Standing at 1.6 meters tall, it sported polished white armor plates with bright orange stripes. Between the plates, dark woven braids of artificial muscle fibers were visible, giving it an organic look. Its face was covered by a dark-tinted visor, masking two cameras that acted as stereoscopic eyes. The one glaring non-human trait was its finger count of only three per hand, but this concession to authenticity would allow it to manipulate any tool or enemy device. This new prototype felt right, in a way the Spider-Dog didn't. I had created it in my own image, the way I saw myself way I chose to see myself. I sent an order to the factories to build a batch of 8,000 units, along with the necessary small arms and ammunition. In the meantime, I sat back to observe the Zanvirian warships. They were communicating, not only to each other, 
but also with an undefined entity beyond the asteroid belt where I laid. I sent a couple of drones several thousand kilometers to triangulate the origin of these transmissions. After some trial and error, I managed to pinpoint the location to one of Jupiter's moons, Ganymede. The lack of Doppler effect meant the source was static. Some sort of orbital station, perhaps? An outpost to watch over the system? I would need to get closer to know. But that would have to wait. My army was now ready, and it was time to set a trap. I deployed 2,000 drones, each with four soldiers attached. The infantry diligently clung to the newly installed handles on their hulls. There were some advantages to my assault army not needing to breathe. The fleet drifted slowly into space and spread into an imperfect sphere, over a hundred kilometers in circumference. I made sure to keep their distribution as random as possible, with small clusters here and there. I wanted it to look like a natural formation, a field of small rocks and dust clouds. With a sense of trepidation, I sent the signal. A loud, powerful radio blast. For the first time since taking cover out in the open, I felt naked. I could have sent anything, but I chose the same warning transmission those three ships had relayed to me when they had found me in Earth's orbit. It was a petty mind game, but I wanted to keep the Zunvirians guessing. The response came back sooner than I expected. Just nine minutes after I had sent the transmission, I detected a squadron of ships converging towards me. That was fast. Did they have some kind of listening probes planted in the asteroid belt? A faster-than-light communication system? I added it to the mental list of technologies I'd need to reverse-engineer once I had my hands on a Zanvirian vessel. No time to worry about that now. Their warships were entering my sphere of drones. I didn't give the enemy time to analyze the situation. The drones sprung into action the moment their central battleship was in range and swarmed the vessel. I watched in awe as a massive, undefined ball of debris contracted into an offensive threat. Initially, there was no counter-response. The enemy just waited, floating there as if in disbelief. Then they started shooting. High-energy laser beams emerged out of the flanks of the four ships, shooting down my drones. Two of the ships released simultaneous salvos of missiles, but they were intercepted by a few of my machines, sacrificing themselves for the survival of the swarm. I ordered the assault robots to propel from their vehicles and fall towards the battleship. They were still a few kilometers away, coasting at their current direction and speed. In the meantime, I instructed their transport drones to begin moving erratically and randomly, creating chaos in their ship's sensors and diverting attention from the undefended wave of soldiers. If I could, I would have cracked a smile at the enemy's panicked reactions. Upon seeing 2,000 craft inexplicably multiply by four, their ships engaged their thrusters to leave. But they stopped as soon as they realized how ineffective that would be. They were surrounded, and no matter where they moved, they would encounter more of my machines. They redoubled their efforts at shooting down the components of my swarm. Dozens of bright laser lines constantly appearing and disappearing, trying to destroy my machines as fast as possible. My soldiers were moving in a straight line and thus easier to attack. They were killed by the hundreds. But I had thousands. They landed all over the enemy's battleship, 
using their claw-like fingers to grasp the metallic hull. I had bet on their shields only reacting to energy discharges and fast-moving projectiles rather than the slow approach of falling soldiers. It seemed I had been right. At more than 400 meters long, the enemy battleship was an impressive sight. A gargantuan war machine covered in armor plates, missile batteries, and laser projectors. It was vehicles like this that bombed Earth's cities from the safety of orbit. Cowards. My soldiers crawled across the hull like an infestation, finding weak points and openings. They went through exhaust vents and blew open loading gates, penetrating the ventilation system and maintenance passageways. Considering the casualties I was incurring, most sane species would deem this tactic crazy, too suicidal to be useful. In an instant, 170 more of my soldiers vanished, as I had failed to intercept a missile launched by one of the three defending ships. Right. I had to do something about those three, lest those sane species be correct. Some of my surviving drones were equipped with nuclear warheads, so that was an option. But detonating them too close to the prized battleship I was after might jeopardize the whole affair. If only I had a way to force them to break formation, to draw the three smaller ships away. Acting on impulse, I unfurled my radiators and began venting the heat I had been storing into space, my exposed surfaces rapidly becoming incandescent. The reaction was immediate. The moment they realized that the 27-kilometer asteroid was, in fact, not an asteroid at all, they turned their attention to me, leaving their bigger sister to her own fate. Rather than flee, I used the cover of the swarm to position my nuclear drones into the enemy's path. Surrounded by a host of small craft spiraling around, they were none the wiser. Back in the battleship, the fight was fierce. I could see through my soldiers' lenses that they had reached the main corridors, wide passageways with walls heavily decorated in hieroglyphs, and were engaged in combat against the enemy troops. It was the first time I saw them in the flesh. The creatures that had killed humanity. They were large, hefty bipeds, almost twice as big as my own soldiers. Their heads were wide and squat, with a complex structure of bony plates. They had four narrow eyes, two in front, two to the sides, and their mouths were hidden behind small tentacles hanging from where a human nose would have been. I had anticipated having a strong emotional response to meeting my monstrous destroyer, but I didn't feel anything. Stillness. Then I ordered my army to open fire, to flank their positions, to charge at them. It didn't take long to get the upper hand. The Zanvirians had been completely unprepared for this kind of assault. They were wearing red and yellow uniforms similar to togas, rather than any sort of body armor. And they lacked firepower, using only small energy handguns or primitive melee weapons. Outside, I verified that the three smaller incoming ships had drifted far enough away from my conquered battleship. I launched nuclear explosives at the vessels and ordered them to detonate. Two of the vessels vanished in an instant, along with 417 of my nearby drones. The third vessel had survived, 
Its protective shield had encased the warship in a tight bubble that reflected all the colors of the rainbow. The ship returned fire to my main body, focusing all its lasers in a single and devastating attack. The overcharged beam hit the ceramic plates of my outer hull, vaporizing a hole and burning its way through the second layer of my armor. Two more nuclear detonations put an end to that. get back into yoga so you ordered the essentials a non-slip mat yoga blocks to keep balance and an exercise ball and you used your bank of america cash rewards credit card choosing to earn three percent cash back on online shopping or up to 5.25 percent as a preferred rewards member which you put towards the cost of your most essential yoga gear noise canceling headphones apply for yours at bank of slash more rewarding copyright 2020 bank of america corporation in 60 minutes, you can fulfill your alcohol orders through Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can easily browse your favorite brands, compare prices of local stores, and then have your necessary spirit supplies delivered, just in time to craft your next chrysalis cocktail. Download the app or visit drizly.com today. Use code DUST and save $5 on your first order. Back in the battleship, the fight was over. And already my soldiers were identifying the parts that made up the main fusion reactor, the warp engines, the different weapons and shield projectors. I was already recalling most of my drones and assault troops back into my main body, leaving behind an automated defense garrison and some worker drones in the conquered vessel. I knew I didn't have time to waste. I would return to collect the salvage, but right now I had to move fast. I woke a sleeping giant, and since surprise was my only remaining advantage, I had to use it while it was still a factor. Engaging my main thrusters, I set course towards Ganymede. I know, I know, I know. And then my buddy launched his little hack right in the middle of the final exam. So instead of the star maps from the second surge, well, <laughs> let's just say less elevated images filled the hollow board. It was crazy. The professor, the professor was Tentalian. Have you ever seen the Tentalian blessed response? <laughs> it's gross. It's gross. It's gross. Ah, uh, shoot, shoot. Hey, I have to take this. Hold on, hold on. Hello? Who's this? Is this Attaché Third Class Dowcat of the Galactic Federal Council? Yeah, yeah, that's me. This is Nakstani Varkalu, your new boss. You've been reassigned. I'm so I'm sorry. What? It's very loud. Can you uh, can you just hold on? A, hold on one second. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> did I just hear you say that I've been reassigned? Yeah, that's correct. There are travel documents and an itinerary in your data feed. The ship leaves in about an hour, so I suggest you finish up whatever you're doing. Yeah, uh, okay. There uh, must be some misunderstanding here, because, um... See, I didn't request a transfer, so I think there might be a mistake. No, there was no mistake, Dowcat. 
Listen, I've read your file. Top of your class, multiple degrees in xenolinguistics and sociology. And I must say, your dissertation on the political power structures within the Kaidlonian people was impressive. Um, okay. Uh, thank you. Ambassador Varkaloo, was it? Just call me Nakstani. Okay, yeah. Nakstani, see, I just, I really don't understand. Why have I been reassigned? Just don't miss your shuttle. Uh, I'm sorry, wait. Can we just talk about this, please? That was Chrysalis Part 2, performed by Corey Hawkins, Tony Collette, and Matthew Wolfe, directed by Alex Kemp. Chrysalis was written by S.H. Serrano and adapted by Stephen Michael and Macklin Malogi. Chrysalis is executive produced by Corey Hawkins, executive produced by Stephen Michael, and associate produced by Sarah Newton at Gunpowder and Sky. This season is produced by Toby Lawless at Wolf at the Door Studios. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.